Well, if you do remain standing, we're going to come now to Colossians chapter 3. We're starting in verse 5. We're going through a series in Colossians, and we've come to Colossians 3, starting in verse 5, going to verse 17. It's a bit of a longer passage, so if you have a hard time standing up for a while, you're free to sit down. But for those of you fortified and standing up, let's, uh, let's do this. Okay, Colossians 3, 5. This is the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. This is God's Word. You may sit down and let's pray together now as we seek to understand God's Word. Father, we do come to you this morning poor and needy. We need your light to shine on us as we seek to understand your Word. I ask that you would help us to be doers of your Word today, not merely hearers of it. And we ask these things in the mighty name and the authority of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, how do you kill something that is already dead? How do you kill something that's already dead? When I lived in Las Cruces, New Mexico with my wife a number of years ago, we lived in a converted garage. It was uh, pretty small, and uh, right next to a field, a field that used to get irrigated by flooding. And whenever this flooding would come, when irrigation time came, all sorts of critters seemed to find their way into our little abode there. It was the closest safe haven. And one of those critters was a giant desert centipede. And so you might be thinking about like centipedes. Oh, there's this little cute one-inch little deals, uh, critters. 
No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a six-inch, very nasty, very thick, very fast critter. And so Sarah and I had what was called the centipede knife. And <laughs> the centipede knife only got used for one thing, and that was slicing the centipede if we got close enough. It was hard to get because they were all so fast. But if I did get close enough, close enough to the centipede, I would slice it in half. And then a really creepy thing happened. Both sides still lived, and they, they went in every direction. And inevitably, I would have to take the knife and slice multiple times so that this thing would finally die. Well, for the Christian, our sinful nature is like those centipedes. It is nasty. Even when dealt a death blow, which happens when we have trusted in Jesus, he has, our, our sinful nature has died, but it still remains very active. It's going in every direction. And remnants of this nature can still be found in every single one of us who follow the Lord Jesus. And so the question remains, what do we do about this situation? When we see sin in our hearts, when we see remnants of the sinful nature still in our lives, what do we do? That's the issue our text addresses today. If you remember, we're in chapter 3, and in verses 1 to 4 last week, we were told to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above. Because we've been risen with Christ, our life is no longer our own. It's hidden with Christ in God. And those are wonderful realities. Those are true realities for you as a Christian. But still, we all know that sin remains. So what do we do about it? How do we fight this battle between the old nature and the new? Well, this passage in verses 5 to 17 gives us a battle plan that we can take to fight this battle. And it's summarized in this way. Rely on Jesus to empower your efforts to become like him. Rely on Jesus to empower your efforts to become like him. You see, in the Christian life, yes, we have been made new. We are clean. We are holy before God. But God calls us to make effort, to exert holy sweat to become like him. But we don't do so in our own power. We have to rely on Jesus to do so. So three ways in this passage that we can rely on Jesus to empower our efforts to become like him. First, we must kill what the earthly remnants of our old self. That's in verses 5 to 7. Second, we have to change into our earthly or our heavenly clothing. That's in verses 8 to 14. And then finally, let Christ permeate our life. That's in verses 15 to 17. So first, we must kill the remnants of the old self. Look there at verse 5. Paul doesn't mince words when it comes to dealing with the sinful patterns that remain within. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. In other words, don't give it a chance to live. This is clear language, decisive language. 
Paul here is hearkening back to the verses before. You'll remember in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, you have died. You have died to earthly things. Don't set your minds on uh, the things below on earth. Set your minds on the things above. Paul is saying, you have died to what is earthly in you. It no longer has power over you. You no longer have to walk according to those ways. So since you have died, put those things that are earthly in you, the remnants, put them to death. That means we need to make every effort to rid ourselves of those things. So what are these things we need to put to death? What are these earthly things? If you look at the text, first, we need to put sexual immorality to death. The word here for sexual immorality covers all types of sexual sin, from lust to pornography, for sexual intercourse outside of marriage, to adultery, all of it. And in case you haven't noticed, sexual sin is an epidemic in our culture. It's something that is paraded. It is celebrated. It is seen throughout our culture as something to be uh, honored and to be worshipped. But brother and sister in Christ, do not be deceived. Even though that is the norm of our culture, sexual immorality must not be tolerated in those of us who have been redeemed. We must put it to death If you're in men's and women's Bible study, last week we studied 1 Thessalonians, and in chapter 4, verse 3 there, it says, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul says something similar. He says, flee from sexual immorality. In other words, don't let it hang around. Don't think that a little bit is okay. Don't be deceived into telling yourself that everyone else is doing it. It's normal. Put it to death. The next two vices to put to death are also sexual in nature. It gives you an indication of Paul knowing the the temptations of the sinful flesh. It's impurity and passion. Here it's misplaced passion. Misplaced sexual passion is really what it's talking about. If we go to 1 Thessalonians 4 again in verse 7, Paul reminds us that God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. So put to death impurity. Put to death wrongly placed passion. Well, next, we're told to put evil desire to death. What is evil desire but the thoughts and passions and inklings that are centered on those things that are displeasing and abhorrent to God. And finally, we get to this word covetousness. Interestingly, Paul singles out this vice. He puts this in a different category from the others. Perhaps that's because this vice, as compared to the others, may fuel the other things. What is covetousness but greed? It's wanting more than you currently have. It's wanting something or someone that belongs to someone else. And Paul says that covetousness, this desire for more, is idolatry. Why is it idolatry? Because coveting coveting causes us, as Romans 1 says, to worship the created things instead of the creator. It causes us to set our eyes 
downward on the things of the earth and not on the things above. So why do we need to put all these things to death? That's a great question. Why do we need to put these things to death? Well, verse 6 tells us, because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You see, many people live their lives as if they're accountable to no one. Just me, myself, and I. Well, I have news for you. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are all held accountable to God. There will be a day of judgment. And the wrath of God, according to this verse and others throughout the whole New Testament, will fall upon all of those who are caught up in these things. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. You'll remember in verse 9, if you've read that passage, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, he goes on, nor the greedy, and has other lists, will inherit the kingdom of God. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, if you're here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus, this is really bad news. Because this means you will never have long-term victory over those sins, those faults that are besetting you. Because getting rid of sexual immorality, getting rid of covetousness, this cannot be done on our own, in our own strength, on our, within our own nature. We need a new heart. We need to be born again. You see, these commands are for people who already have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, don't hear a list like, oh yeah, I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing this. No, what you need is to know the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you need this morning. And so I'd invite you to put your trust in Jesus today. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you new desires to live this way. Well, back in verse 7, Paul reminds the Colossians of their former life, their former destiny. He says, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. Paul doesn't want the Colossians to get prideful or to forget what they were saved from. You see, they too were under God's wrath when they were not yet saved. And the same was true for every single one of us in this room. We may have not done every single sin on this list, but we were all under God's wrath until the grace of God appeared. Every single one of us who has trusted in the Lord Jesus. So Paul is saying, since you are a new creation, since you have been raised with Christ, Put these things to death. Don't mess with those things that are objects of God's wrath. Paul elsewhere in Ephesians 5.3 says that of three of these five items on this list, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, they must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So I'd ask you a question. Can any of these things, these five things, sexual immorality, impurity, all of these, this, this whole list, can any one of these, covetousness, be named among you? 
Are these things dwelling within you? Well, how can we fight the battle if it is true? And if we're honest, many of these things are still present within us. How can we fight the battle? Well, first, we can fight the battle by remembering who we are. We no longer have to live in sexual immorality. We have been made new. We have gone from darkness to light. We have the power to fight. The second way that we can fight to put these things to death is to remember the consequences. So I'd invite you, the next time that you are tempted to lust after another person, the next time you are coveting something or someone that belongs to another, remember that the wrath of God is coming for that thing. May that motivate you to abstain. Third, we can put these sins to death by bringing them into the light. We do that by admitting before God and before others that these things are present in our lives. What prevents us from saying that any of these things are in our life? Is it not shame? Is it not that we don't want to be exposed for what's true deep within? Well, when we confess and admit before God and before others, and when we repent, that is, when we change our mind and go in a new direction and stop doing that, sins like these lose their power when they're brought into the light. So I'd invite you, just very practically, after the service today, if you have a close friend here and there is one of these sins that is weighing you down, and the, the Holy Spirit even right now is bringing to your mind, grab that person. You could confess to them there or just meet them for coffee this week. Come talk to one of the pastors or elders. But don't delay. Don't delay in dealing with these sins. How else can we kill and put to death these things? We can do that by actively resisting and starving these desires. In other words, don't let the desires fester in your mind. Make a covenant like Job not to look lustfully on somebody else. Make a covenant with your mind before God not to covet other things that people have and fight with the weapons that God has given you. He's given you the Word of God. It's called the sword of the Spirit. It's the most effective way to defeat sin in your life. Psalm 119, how, do, how can a young man keep his way pure but by guarding it according to your word? He gives us prayer. We can come to him and ask him for help, and he gives us other believers to help us, to sharpen us, to challenge us. Give no opportunity to the flesh that you might obey its desires. The great Puritan John Owen once said in his book, The Mortification of Sin, which by the way, if you've not read that book and you want some help on how to crucify the desires of the flesh, it's a good read. I would get one that's uh, made more easy to read by somebody than the original. But he said this, John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So how can you rely on Jesus to empower your efforts to become like him? First, kill the earthly remnants of your old self. 
Now we come to the second way that we can rely on Jesus to become more like him, and that's to change into our heavenly clothing. In case you aren't aware, Halloween is tomorrow. And uh, at no other time of the year is it okay to have like a two-story skeleton in your front yard or a spider web that covers your entire lawn. I'm not going to comment on the morality of Halloween or whether or not you should trick-or-treat, so, so sorry, I'm not going to do that now. But, but what do kids do at Halloween? Kids dress up. They put costumes on. Some are fairies, some are lions, some are unicorns, some are clowns. Clowns can be quite scary, actually. But some people dress up like people they want to be like. That was me when I was a kid. Uh, and you'll, you'll know my age more because of who I dressed up like. But when I was a kid, I lived in the San Francisco area. I was a sports fan, so I dressed up like Joe Montana. Joe Montana was arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. But I wanted to be like him, so I dressed like him. I had these fake shoulder pads. I had a plastic helmet. I had number 16 on my jersey that said 49ers. I wanted to be like him, so I dressed like him. Well, in verses 8 to 14, Paul shows us what it means to dress like Christ, spiritually speaking. He shows us what we need to take off and what we need to put on. He uses clothing metaphor for this section of the Scripture. And why does he introduce this clothing metaphor here? I was thinking about that a lot this week. Why, why does he switch from put to death to now clothing? And I think it's because of this. Because if you think about your clothes, you're taking dirty clothes off every single day. There's things that you have to do every single day, and you're putting new clothes on every single day. And that is the Christian life. When we see these things, these sinful desires within us, we need to take them off every single day. And we need to put on the things of the Spirit. And so what are these dirty clothes from the old sinful nature that we need to take off? These clothes could all be marked. You know, some, some of you moms like label the clothes. Uh, these dirty spiritual clothes could all be labeled hate right, right behind it because they're characteristics of hatred towards one another. So look at verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then verse 9, do not lie to one another. So let's look at the first three things we need to take off. Anger, wrath, and malice. All three traits seek to harm another person. You remember what James said in chapter 4 of his letter. He gave us some insight of where these things come from. He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, these traits, they come from within. They're not primarily circumstantial. It's not primarily because someone's annoying that you're angry. They're coming from within, from the heart. You see, we often get angry because we're putting ourselves on the throne. We're putting ourselves in this place of pride, in a position we don't deserve to be. We're angry because our kingdom is not coming. Our will is not being done. Well, the next three pieces of clothing we need to discard are slander, obscene talk, and lying to one another. 
Slander is the speech that defames or devalues another person. It is speech that tears down the character and reputation of another person. Obscene talk is crude talk. It's dirty or inappropriate talk. It's a joke that you would never tell your mother. It's cursing. It's indulgent talk. And then lying. Lying is telling something that's not true or shielding a portion of the truth for a particular reason, withholding the truth, no matter how small. Proverbs 26, 28 says that a lying tongue hates its victims. Well, these actions, once again, they all come from within, all these sins of the mouth. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Christian, don't be deceived into thinking that you are angry because someone else has wronged you. Don't be deceived into thinking that you're talking bad about others just because you have to. That's just the way you are. It's not just the way you are. God is calling you to put these things off, put them away. They're not part of your identity. So Paul is telling us to take off these dirty, sinful nature clothes, these old clothes that are all marked with hate. And then he gives us three reasons why we're to do that. They're all rooted in our new identity in Christ. So look at verse 9. He says, take these things off because you've already put off the old self with its practices. You've done it already, or rather, Christ has done it already. So keep doing it. Keep putting these things off. The power has been broken. Second, take these dirty, sinful nature clothes off because, verse 10, you have put on the new self. You have been made new. What is this new self like? Paul tells us it's being renewed in knowledge, meaning you're learning what it means to put on the new self. It's a process. It's the process we call sanctification. And what is the model? What is the model that we're all being built up to? It's the after the image of its creator. That is Jesus. Jesus is the model. So Paul is saying that you, believer, are being remade to look like Jesus. Remember, God saves us as we are, but he doesn't keep us as we are. He makes us and he's rebuilding us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. Just like it would be inappropriate to put on wet, dirty, smelly clothes right after a shower. Can you imagine doing that? Like, hey, I'm just going to put these back on. Also, it doesn't make sense to put on these old clothes of the sinful nature. After we've been made clean, we've been made new, why would we put on these old clothes? We've got to take them off. And then Paul gives a third reason why to take off these old nature clothes, and it's again rooted in our new identity in Christ. So look at verse 11. Paul says, in effect, if you are a Christian, you are no longer defined by your cultural identity, Greek and Jew. You're no longer defined by your religious identity, circumcised, uncircumcised. You're no longer defined by your ethnic identity, barbarian or Scythian. Barbarians were non-Greeks. Scythians were like low barbarians. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said of Scythians, they're from the Black Sea. 
They're little better than wild beasts. Jesus has broken down those barriers. You're no longer defined by that. You're no longer defined by your social status, slave or free. But now Christ defines you. He lives in you. He is all and in all. And so fresh with our identity reminder, Paul now tells us what we need to put on. It's as if he's saying you're a new man, you're a new woman, you've been given a new identity, now live according to it, which is pattern after the Lord Jesus. So look at verse 12. Before he gets to the list, he once again reminds them who they are. And we need to pay attention to this. We just need to stop for a second. These are constant identity reminders from Paul and from our Lord Jesus. They should alert us to the fact that our new identity needs to be on the forefront of our minds when we're thinking about putting sin to death and walking by the Spirit. We always need to be reminded of who we are in Christ because we forget we're leaky vessels. Well, verse 12, before he gets to the list, he says they're chosen ones or elect ones. They're holy ones. They're beloved ones. That's who they are before God. And Christian, that's who you are before God. You are chosen, holy, beloved. These are, now he says, because you're that, these are the clean clothes of the new self that you're to put on. And I want you, as you listen, to think about the contrast between these two ways of life, these two lists, the the list we had earlier, slander, rage, malice, and these things. Now, which one is more attractive? Which one do you want? Here it is, starting in verse 12. Put on this compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You might recognize these traits because every single one of these traits are traits of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. How does Jesus define himself in a Matthew 11? He says he is gentle and humble in heart. That's where this word humility comes from and meekness could also be gentleness It's what Paul is saying. He's saying, put on Christ. That's what you need to put on. But what does it look like? What does it look like to put on these things? Helpfully, Paul shows us what these traits look like starting in verse 13. He says, putting on these traits means bearing with one another. Or I love the translation, putting up with one another. How realistic is that? You know, in Christian community, we, we offend each other. There are some people that really annoy us. We might be quite annoying ourselves. <laughs> but bear with one another. It means forgiving one another. Again, if we're living in community, we will offend each other. So if anyone has a complaint, it says, which always happens in community, you are to forgive. How are you to forgive? As God forgave you. Well, how did God forgive us? God forgave us undeservedly. God forgave us unconditionally. And God forgives us repeatedly. And so I wonder right now, if, as I'm speaking, if there is someone in your life that God has brought to your mind that you have refused to forgive. Have they just done something that you will never forgive Well, here the Lord is calling us to forgive one another as God forgave 
us. Doesn't mean we're going to be fully reconciled. Doesn't mean we're going to be best friends. But we must forgive as God forgave us. These new clothes that we put on should lead us to forgive frequently. We should have a heart of forgiveness within us. And then Paul gives in verse 14 a summary in short form of what we need to put on. It's kind of like, hey, you haven't been listening for a long time. You've kind of been tuning out the message. Listen to this. Above all these, put on love. Put on love because love is a fastener. It binds everything together in perfect harmony, Paul says. What did Jesus say when it's, if you want to obey all the prophets, what are you going to do? You're going to love, or all the law, rather. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said. So in summary, what are you going to put off? You're going to put off hate. What are you going to put on? Put on love. What are you going to put off? Remnants of the old self. What are you going to put on? The new self. What are you going to put off? Sin. What are you going to put on? Christ. So here Paul is showing us in a slightly different way the truths he told the Galatians in chapter 5 of that book. He says, by, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, as we put on these new heavenly clothes, clothes they're all marked love, these new heavenly clothes. And we're, the, the old life, when we do that, is not going to be so appealing. We're not going to turn to the same things with the same vigor that we used to. So how can we rely on Jesus to empower our efforts to become like him? by putting on our heavenly clothing. Now we come to the final way that we can rely on Jesus to become more like him, and it's really the main how-to of the passage, and that's by letting Christ permeate our lives. About this time of year, it's a, it's a wonderful time if you've come in from outdoors to smell a smell of fresh soup or chili, whatever you, whatever you like coming in, you just smell that, and it creates an environment like, oh, man, I'm, I'm home. I want to I eat that. I want to be inside. I'm freezing cold. Well, in this last section of our text, it shows us these ingredients. Because when we make soup, you put all these ingredients in, and then it, like, smells amazing. But the text here shows us the ingredients we need to cultivate an environment that will help us carry out these commands. Because the last thing I would want is, you to come away from this measure, I can't do this, I can do this, I can't do this, I can do this. We need to create an environment for these things to happen. And this is what he gives us in these verses. So how do we let Christ permeate our lives? Three ingredients are necessary according to verses 15 to 17. First, let the peace of Christ rule. Second, let the word of Christ dwell. Third, let the name of Christ motivate. So let the peace of Christ rule first. This means that the, the peace, the peace that Jesus gives us should characterize our lives, not chaos, not strife, because we are at peace with God. We have been forgiven. Our hearts should not be in chaos. He's given us peace, shalom, contentment. That's the environment that should rule. 
But it shouldn't just rule in our own lives. Even more importantly, it should rule in our life together as a community with other believers. Paul says that we were called to this, this peace in one body, which is the church. That means our gatherings as believers should be characterized with peace. They should be characterized with love and all these other characteristics that we are to put on, bearing with one another, all of these things. Christ's peace should rule and reign, not quarreling, not backbiting, not gossiping about the person in the row behind you. This should never, these things should never characterize Hope Fellowship or any other gathering of believers, not quarreling, backbiting, all those kind of things. It's this peace. And from this peace should lead forth thanksgiving, thanksgiving for our standing in Christ. So he says, be thankful. Paul has to remind us this all throughout Colossians. <laughs> we're, so, we're so easy to forget what we've been given. Be thankful for being part of the body. Being thankful for what Christ has done. So the peace of Christ must reign, but it can reign best only when the next ingredient is thrown in. So the second way we can let per Christ permeate our lives is in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. The word of Christ here is shorthand for the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ has died to save sinners like you and me. And if we want to live the new life in Christ's strength, the word of Christ must dwell within us richly as a community, as hope fellowship. That's why here everything that we do is driven by the word of Christ, from the prayer that Aaron gave, for the songs that we have selected, from the preaching which is from his word. We are centered upon the risen Lord Jesus, and that is the focus of everything we do. You see, the Colossians, they didn't all have Bibles to go home and just read and read and read. This was more of an oral culture. But they were, they were still commanded, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. That largely happened in the corporate gathering. And Paul says, what is that characterized by? If the word of Christ is dwelling within us rich, richly, we are teaching and admonishing one another with content from God's word. That happens from the pulpit, yes, but it also happens in one another's lives. That means we are in each other's lives, encouraging one another from God's word and challenging each other when we're out of line. It means singing the truths of the gospel, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, he says. In corporate gatherings, yes, but also alone in your hearts. Singing to the Lord, being thankful to Him. And that's where he ends, thanking God for what He's done in your life. We do that through prayer. We do that through uh, just giving thanks for, for all of life. We can do that. Well, we strive to make the Word of Christ dwell richly here at Hope Fellowship. That's, that's what we are about. But I want you to consider, I want you to ask, is the Word of Christ dwelling within you richly at home, individually, privately, or is the Word of Christ dwelling within you in poverty? Is God's Word dwelling within you only once or twice a week when you hear a message you go to Bible study? Or is it dwelling within you richly throughout the week, in your personal time with the Lord, when you gather with others in smaller contexts, 
Friends, we need the word of Christ to dwell richly within us. If we're going to have success in putting off the old man, the old nature, and putting to death these deeds of the body that God is bringing judgment for, the word of Christ must dwell within us richly if we're going to live the life God has called us to. Then we get to the third and last ingredient, to let Christ permeate our lives here in verse 17. And that's letting the name of Christ motivate everything we do. So if we want to put to death the remnants of our sinful nature, if we want to put off the practices of the flesh and put on Christ, it requires an attitude. It requires us setting our minds. It requires our wills being set in a particular direction. And that is the direction to seek to honor the Lord Jesus in every single thing we do, in word, Paul says, or in deed. So what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? It means to act in the way that you believe Jesus would act if he were in the same situation. It's to think about what would honor Christ most in this situation, before I speak and before I act. You might remember back in the 90s, there was kind of cheesy bracelets, granted, that said WWJD. You know, all these people, if some of you are born later, so it's fine, you don't remember, it's probably good. But, but, but during the time... Uh, they were really popular, WWJD, and they kind of got made fun of. But the concept was right. WWJD stood for what would Jesus do? And we need to ask that question regularly in our lives. When I think about a coworker who's living an alternative lifestyle, what would Jesus do? How would he approach that person? When I think about a neighbor who's just experienced a horrible tragedy, what would Jesus do? How would he respond? When I have a child who may or may not be screaming at dinner time, what would Jesus do? How would he respond? God wants us to do everything in the name of Jesus, as if Jesus himself were doing it. And as we live our lives, Christians, as it closes here, the verse 17, Christians should be the most thankful people on the planet. Again, he says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks for being able to live this life giving thanks that we're not under God's wrath, giving thanks that we can be representatives of Him here on earth. Well, as we close, there's a phrase that sometimes floats around the Christian world. It's, it's this phrase, let go and let God. No, just let go and let God. There may be a, a kernel of truth to this phrase, but I, I, I don't want to burst your bubble. It's not a biblical phrase. It's nowhere in the Bible. It's kind of like next to cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, it's in that part of the Bible. It's not, it's not in the Bible. Well, instead of letting go, God today through his word is calling us to get going, to be active in living the life of faith he calls us to as his children, to put to death the deeds of the body, to take off the old sinful habits, the old clothes of the old person, and to put on Christ, to put on love. But as we do so, we must rely upon Jesus He's got to permeate all of our life to empower us each step of the way. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, this is a weighty passage. There is so much here to learn from. There's so much that you are commanding. But Lord, I thank you that you have given us your spirit. You have given us 
of yourself that we might walk in the newness of life. So Lord, I pray that today as we go out, you would remind us of those things that need to die within our old nature. Maybe they're lingering around. Maybe they are things we even love. Lord, you have changed our heart. Give us new desires, Lord. And Lord, help us to put on Christ. Help us to reflect you, Lord Jesus, wherever we go, in word or in deed. We pray that in Christ's name.